opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left? Well, we know who the hard left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right, to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position. Hard the left, the hard 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 left, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I made it, man. I've been enjoying like your writing, and your Twitter presence of late. How do I describe it to you? Like very robust or whatever. <laughs> Balshi. Yeah. <laughs> Angry Balshi, Sarki, various things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you've been writing for some places as well. You've written for Jacobin, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I guess I work for Jacobin now. I have been since the oh, start yeah. of the year, but. I think it was a few years back and I'd written for them about Ireland initially. Ireland used to predominantly write about Irish politics. Mm. And then I think it was very start of 2017, I wrote for something for them about British politics, which is the first time I'd ever written about Britain. It was just around the time of the Article 50 vote when everyone seemed to be running around in a panic about Labour's line. And I thought it was actually the right thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah. It was the one, the one that made the most sense. And it, was, it wasn't just liberals who were running around in a panic. It was people on the left who were kind of losing their heads over it. That's so, uh, definitely my yeah. recollection. I'm not mean to slag them off because they do a lot of really good work, but around the time of the Article 50 vote in 2017, I went to a Navarra event. And it was quite staggering how like everyone there had kind of almost declared Corbynism a busted flush. And that was just a few months before everyone got more enthusiastic about it than ever because of the election. And I'm not saying specifically the Navarra team were like that, just like everyone at the event, just going along as a spectator even. Yeah, a lot of people lost their nerve over that. Yeah, so I mean, that was that was the first time I, I, yeah, I, I ever wrote anything on British politics and I ended up, I don't know, I've, I've carried on writing this, that and the other uh, to do with Corbynism over the last few years. And then I guess now it feels like you don't have the same constructive or optimistic side to it where you've got a reasonable chance or even an outside chance of exercising power and leading the party and doing something constructive with it. Mm. So I guess the main thing is just to stop people from completely rewriting the history of what happened between 2015 and 2019 because we all saw it happen, you know, it all yeah, happened yeah, in plain yeah. sight and, and we know they saw it happen, but, you know, there's pretty concerted effort to wipe the slate clean. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you. Like I, I said to you the other day, we kind of went in there, like, as after they suspended Corbyn, me and my co-host Yair, who's like the only member of our team who is actually Jewish, like, I thought it'd be good to, like, talk to him about, you know, why he doesn't think Corbyn is an anti-Semite and get a perspective that is like rooted in that debate. But now that we've done that, I kind of want to move outside of just the narrow issue of anti-Semitism and specifically as it pertains to the left and obviously touch on that because it's inextricable from this whole thing. But yeah, like I say, I've been enjoying your robustness as a voice on Starmer's war on the left. So what do you think is the political rationale for suspending Jeremy Corbyn? from the Labour Party at this point in time? And how do you think it fits into basically the overall Starmer project? 
and his other actions. Okay, yeah, so... Kind of two questions there. Sorry, I fucked it already. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened last week, last Thursday, when you had two dramatic events or high-profile media events in the space of 24 hours where, first of all, you had the publication of the EHRC report and then you had Starmer suspending Corbyn as a member of the Labour Party and they happened so fast on the tails of each other that if someone wasn't reading into the details and reading the reports in depth and reading the text of the report itself, they might have easily gathered the impression that Corbyn had been suspended because of the contents of the report, that it was so damning. It was almost a stake through the heart of Corbyn as an individual and Corbynism as a project. And the whole thing had been legally condemned by a kind of independent statutory body for all kinds of heinous offences. And that would certainly have been the impression that you got if you followed the newspaper headlines and the broadcast headlines as well. But if you actually looked at the report, it was clearly the opposite of the case, that there was nothing in the report that could possibly justify any kind of disciplinary action against Corbyn or against any leading figure in the party. And it wasn't that kind of report. It wasn't really geared towards indicting individuals and holding them culpable in all kinds of different ways. The recommendations that it made were about policies and procedures and structures in the Labour Party. And some of the recommendations it made for how you could improve practices were quite sensible and quite measured and, and well thought out. And there was certainly nothing in there that was a call for action against Corbyn, whether an explicit call or even an implicit call. So for Starmer to then follow up and suspend him was completely unwarranted by the report. And I do think one factor in his motivation, if not indeed the most important factor, was a desire to stop people from having a sober, measured, analytical discussion of what was in the report and whether it measured up to some of the advanced hype and whether it measured up to the whole media narrative surrounding Labour anti-Semitism. Because if they had had that kind of discussion, then I think some points would have come to the surface quite quickly. First of all, the content of the report in no way measured up to what people have been saying in the months leading up to it, that it was going to be this kind of damning indictment that would lead to Corbyn being kicked out of the Labour Party and possibly even being prosecuted for some kind of unlawful act. It was always the, the content damning, wasn't it, for some reason? Do you just see yeah, that the, over the, and over again? It is expected to be damning. I mean, the, the word, yeah, the, the, the word damning was attached to it months in advance, probably last year. You know, the fact that the inquiry was happening at all was said to be damning in the first place mm. and certainly I saw a couple of weeks ago on Newsnight, Lewis Goodall had quite a good short magazine piece about the first six months of Starmer's leadership and what it tells us about Starmer's project but it did include that line that the EHRC report was expected to be damning without saying by whom was it expected to be damning and of whom was it expected to be damning and so on. I saw in The Observer on Sunday there was a story that described it as a bombshell report and I have to say, it made me think of when we were kids at Halloween and you used to be able to get a smoke bomb from the joke shop. And it would make a really impressive cloud of smoke when you set it off. And one time managed to block up traffic for about two miles on the main road into Galway. because People <laughs> thought there was some sort of <laughs> some sort of inferno on the main road. But underneath it all, there was just this tiny little snodge of 
red substance, whatever it was that, that was flammable. <laughs> and the report kind of reminded me of that. If it was a bombshell, it was that kind of bombshell where on the one hand, the detailed findings, the body of the report was quite unspectacular and underwhelming. And it certainly didn't substantiate any claims that the Labour Party under Corbyn was infested with anti-Semitism from top to bottom, that it was an existential threat to Jewish life in Britain, that it was the most anti-Semitic political force in Western Europe since 1945. And Corbyn himself was the most overtly anti-Semitic politician since Adolf Hitler. I mean, all of these claims, as we know, they may sound like lurid exaggerations on the fringe of the mainstream debate, but they actually were the core of the mm. mainstream debate, certainly by the latter part of 2019 and during the 2019 general election campaign. People made these kind of statements and they were taken seriously. They weren't considered to be over the top or perhaps somewhat exaggerated or unfounded or unreasonable. They were put on the top of national news bulletins. They were put on front page of newspapers. And there's nothing in the report that would remotely substantiate those kind of claims. What there is in the report is basically minor failings are identified, particularly with the disciplinary process. And the question of who's responsible for that, those failings, is a very important one. But put that to one side, those failings in themselves were rather minor. And what you get from the rest of the report in the executive summary and the conclusion, it dresses up those failings in rather overheated rhetoric. And you got the sense, really, and it's not surprising considering the whole situation, the whole controversy that enveloped the report, you got the sense that the people who wrote it we're really straining to find something negative to say about the Labour Party and about the Corbyn leadership in particular, because some of the findings that they made were quite tenuous and quite dubious. And I imagine that a lawyer would be able to challenge them in court quite easily. Mm. And it's one of these situations where people have to do two things at once. It's not for the first time with this controversy. People have found the goalposts moving around the pitch <laughs> as they're lining up to shoot. And so at one and the same time, last Thursday and Friday and, and into this week, people have had to say, on the one hand, the report doesn't contain anything in it that would remotely justify suspending Jeremy Corbyn. On the other hand, the report itself is by no means without flaws. It has significant flaws and its findings can't simply be accepted without question, as Corbyn rightly said in his brief statement that was considered unacceptable by Starmer, unacceptable by the greater part of the British media. Some of the findings I thought were you know, very questionable. For example, the question of unlawful harassment. Strange definition. There were two examples given of unlawful harassment in the report, one involving Ken Livingston and one involving a much less prominent Labour Party member. And the Labour Party was held collectively responsible for their actions. Now, the case of Livingston, it's an interesting one because, as you know, the most high profile Controversy involving Ken Livingston goes back to something that he said about the relationship between Hitler and the Nazis and the Zionist movement in the 1930s, back in 2016. And that's the point that's always held against him. Mm. Now, we don't have to discuss that in the context of the commission report because they didn't cite that as an example of Ken Livingston overstepping the mark. They cited another thing that he said around that time where he disputed the idea that Naz Shah, the Labour MP, had made anti-Semitic comments on social media. This is one of these instances that's almost difficult to keep track of because there's been so much since then, so much water under the bridge. But this is at the very beginning of this controversy and this media narrative around Labour anti-Semitism being put together and coming to the fore in the media. 
in the run-up to the 2016 local elections with a short time to go before the polls, someone dug up Facebook posts by Naz Shah from before she was a Labour MP. She apologised for those Facebook comments and said that she wasn't a bigot, she was ignorant and she was going to educate herself and so on. And most people seem to accept that and accepted that she wasn't some kind of rabid anti-Semite. In any case, the idea that Corbyn was responsible for it was extremely questionable because it happened before he was the party leader. It happened before she was a Labour MP. She became a Labour MP when Miliband was the leader. And she ended up supporting one of Corbyn's opponents in the leadership election anyway. So there was no association between her and Corbyn. In any case, Ken Livingston decided to give his two cents on, on the radio show and said he didn't consider what she had said to be anti-Semitic. Now, whether he was right or wrong about that, it does seem a bit of a stretch to say that it was unlawful, mm. uh, that it was unlawful harassment of people to deny that these Facebook comments from Nasha were anti-Semitic. And to then go from that to holding the Labour Party collectively responsible for what Ken Livingston said, it does seem to me that there's two quite considerable reaches there and it raises <laughs> you know yeah. it raises a vista for both the Labour and the Conservative Party that if it is a form of unlawful harassment to deny racism even in the most egregious cases then the Labour and the Conservative parties are going to be guilty of unlawful harassment every week and possibly every day of the week I mean Tory MPs deny racism all the time they deny racism simply by having Boris Johnson as their leader and mm. insisting that comments he'd made were, were not racist, even though Muslims certainly consider them to be racist. And as far as the Labour Party is concerned, just one example, which I think is particularly egregious, you might remember a few years back, Phil Wallace, the of Labour course, MP, yeah. was up to his neck in a really nasty racist election campaign against the Lib Dems, where one of his staff said the, the idea was to get the whites, the white voters angry. And it was so bad, it was so dishonest that a court actually expelled Phil Willis from the House of Commons, which was almost unprecedented. I think it had been about a century since this had last happened. Mm. And the Labour Parliamentary Party were in uproar about this. They weren't in uproar about what Phil Willis had done. They were in uproar about the idea that he was disciplined. Harriet Harman was the acting leader, the caretaker leader at that time in 2010. And she faced a mutiny from Labour MPs. Tom Watson, he was very angry Exactly, about including... Some of the very people who have been to the fore in accusing Jeremy Corbyn of failings over anti-Semitism, Tom a, Watson was one of them. A young Wes Streeting, I think, before he became Wes an MP. Streeting, David Miliband, before he scurried off to become the prince across the water in the <laughs> United States. All these people who have been doing the rounds of the television studios in the last week and over the last couple of years, pointing the finger at Jeremy Corbyn. Now, according to the president set by the commission, they were all guilty of unlawful harassment and the Labour Party was collectively responsible for that and will be collectively responsible for that as long as West Streeting is still a Labour MP, as long as Tom Watson I presume is still a member in good standing and perhaps even David Miliband is a member of one of the overseas sections. Yeah. So they should all be expelled for the Labour Party or, or the Labour Party's guilty of unlawful harassment. So in that respect it did seem as if the Commission was trying very hard to find something that could be said not just to be wrong or misguided to, to actually have been a violation of anti-discrimination law. And of course, it allowed journalists to then run with that and say that the commission had found Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party to have broken the law. Well, on um, the Ken Livingston point, one of the instances that the report found of unlawful behaviour allegedly by the Labour leadership is 
their so-called interference in the Ken Livingston case in order to ensure that Ken Livingston was disciplined more speedily and harshly. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, an extraordinary double standards. I mean, there have been double standards running the whole way through this saga and the criteria change from one day to the next. But this is a particularly striking one because, as you know, for years, Corbyn was told that he needed to personally intervene in the disciplinary process. And again, Tom Watson was extremely vocal on this subject, saying that he wanted Corbyn to take personal responsibility for these cases. And in the meantime, he was going to intervene himself and he wanted people to send him the details of all these cases and he was going to resolve it. And Jenny Formby had to tell him, Tom, this is against the law what you're proposing to do here. You know, we simply cannot as a party have you going off running this freelance disciplinary operation of your own out of your office and you shouldn't be encouraging people to break the law like that but Watson was telling Gorbin that he had to do this and everyone was telling Gorbin that he had to do this and he was being asked why haven't you taken action and any time he came back and said we have an independent disciplinary process that is not controlled by the leader's office and it's not appropriate that it should be controlled by the leader's office because that would lend itself to all kinds of slanted partisan interventions by me or by anyone else Every time he said that, it was derided. And now we see that there were a small number of cases. It wasn't pervasive. It wasn't the normal practice where the leader's office did contact people from the disciplinary section and say, what have you done in this case? Why is it still gathering dust on your files? Why haven't you suspended this person? Why haven't you expelled this person? The punishment that you eventually did hand down seemed to be very mild in comparison with the scale of what they did. Why haven't you done more? And this is now being held up by the Commission as unacceptable behaviour. And it was phrased, the wording of the report in that, as in a number of other sections, seemed to be very obscure, very opaque and needlessly so. And it was hard to avoid the conclusion that they were not doing their best, let's put it that way, not doing their best to express the point as clearly as it might be so that a journalist could very easily pick up on this and a headline finding that the leader's office intervened in disciplinary cases without fully gathering the impression that that intervention was always designed to try and streamline and speed up and stiffen up the process that was there. And one of the other things that wasn't discussed because of the you know, the kind of feeding frenzy in the media that was set off by Gorbin's suspension, but it was pointed out very well by an article in Middle East Eye by Peter Oborn and Richard Sanders. And I have to say Middle East Eye has had some excellent coverage of this controversy going back a number of years and they've mm. been far superior to publications with much bigger budgets yeah but Oberon and Sanders pointed out that the narrative put across in the commission report boldly contradicts the narrative in the famous John Ware panorama documentary and this is something that British journalists have entirely missed or at least purported to miss where they have held up those two items the panorama documentary and the EHRC report as two planks of the same case, the same indictment of Corbyn. But when you actually look at them, you can accept one or you can accept the other, but you certainly can't accept both. They contradict each other. The commission report does identify flaws in the disciplinary process. It correctly points out, and this is something that we can cross-reference with the famous leaked Labour report from earlier this year, it correctly points out that the majority of those failings were concentrated in the time when Ian McNichol was the General Secretary and Sam Matthews was in charge of the disciplinary process and other people who later came forward as self-styled whistleblowers on Panorama's documentary. Mm. They were the ones who were overseeing the process and the report still holds the Corbyn leadership responsible on the principle that they were in charge and the book stopped with them and it really 
glosses over the fact which the authors of the report cannot have been unaware of this because it was one of the most high profile stories in Britain in British politics in the last two years they cannot have been unaware of the idea that there was a deep antagonism a deep chasm between Corbyn and his team on the one hand and Ian McNichol and his team on the other whatever side you take in that dispute there's no denying it it was the entire premise of the Panorama documentary it was the entire premise of the claims made by Ian McNichol and Sam Matthews and others in different media outlets it was the entire premise of them threatening legal action against the Labour Party and then Keir Starmer paying out a six-figure sum in compensation to them none of that makes sense if you assume that those people were you know, loyal allies loyal minions or loyal agents of Jeremy Corbyn who were simply doing his bidding but that was the rationale of the commission for holding them responsible so it tacitly says without spelling this out and again perhaps this is something where they thought discretion was the better part of valour in terms of spelling it out explicitly it tacitly says that the self-image of those alleged whistleblowers as projected in the Panorama documentary was pure fantasy the idea that they were brave dissidents who were waging a lonely and courageous struggle to root out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party while being frustrated by Corbyn's office at every turn. It's entirely fictitious and it makes it all the more scandalous that not only was that version of events presented in a rather uncritical infomercial with all the credibility of the BBC behind it in the run-up to the general election campaign, but actually it has now been enshrined as a sort of legal touchstone because Starmer didn't contest that version of events in the courts although apparently he was told by Labour's legal team that they would easily win the case and he paid out a six-figure sum. Now it hasn't escaped my notice or probably a lot of people's notice that the threatened lawsuit from John Ware against Jeremy Corbyn has yet to materialise <laughs> several months on which is an interesting fact because if the case that Ware was threatening to bring over the summer was such an open and shut case and Jeremy Corbyn, his pockets have just been swelled by this donation, you know, the crown funder for the legal fund. So if John Ware was absolutely confident of winning that libel action against Corbyn, you would expect him to deploy Mark Lewis or whoever it was representing him with the greatest possible alacrity and get the case before the courts. So far, I haven't heard a peep out of him and... You can draw conclusions from that if you like about how confident he is of actually winning a libel action against someone who intends to contest it and has the resources to contest it. I know he was supposedly going around threatening low budget left wing media publications. I'm not sure exactly who it was he was threatening. I think he was certainly threatening Navarra. He may have been threatening the Canary and people mm -hmm. like that as well. Yeah, I remember one thing threatening th Navarra, though, as a very terse response to some of their reporting featured within one of their articles. Yeah, yeah. There was a threat as well from Emily Oldnew, which Ooh. came in the form of a, of a legal letter that seemed to tacitly haywire. concede. On all of these fronts, on all these grounds, you can find fault with the Commission report and say that it was making rather tenuous arguments that wouldn't stand up under a great deal of scrutiny holding Corbyn responsible for the actions of people in the disciplinary team who have specifically said on the record that they were not acting at the behest of Corbyn, um, that they were waging a kind of campaign against Corbyn. And this point about unlawful harassment seems in itself to be rather dubious and if it was applied consistently would have really devastating consequences for the two major parties in Britain and certainly for the faction that has regained control of the Labour Party. 
But even having said all of that, of course, none of this offers the slightest grounds for suspending Corbyn. So going back to the starting point of your question, it does seem as if Starmer had this action lined up in advance, regardless of what was going to be in the report and regardless of what Corbyn said in response to the report. And so I cannot take it seriously when I see some people, including some people on the left, saying, well, Corbyn shouldn't have been suspended, but he shouldn't have said what he said anyway. Mm. And it's often couched in this way of saying what he said was unwise or wasn't tactically sound or words to that effect. And I have no time for that at all. As far as I'm concerned, what Corbyn said was right in every respect. It was factually right. It was politically right. And it was morally right. It was right and and necessary. I think Judas put it well when they said that to rebut the idea that Labour did represent an existential threat to Jewish people is actively in the interest of Jewish people's safety. I would have to agree with that, yeah. Over the last few years, and this is going beyond talking about Starmer, but talking about the way the left responded to this issue and the way people who supported Corbyn responded to this issue, I think there were some good reasons people had for not pushing back as robustly or as aggressively as they might have done. One reason was that people wanted to be sensitive and they wanted to be seen to be sensitive to accusations of racism, even if they felt those accusations were unfounded or exaggerated or unreasonable. They didn't want to turn around and just bluntly say, you're wrong. And perhaps they thought as well that it would be the right thing to do tactically as well as the right thing to do in principle, that if you were seen to be taking the issue seriously and taking every possible step to address it, then that in itself would cause false or wildly exaggerated claims to wither on the vine. Mm. It would have that effect. Unfortunately, that's not the way it worked out. The failure to push back hard against what were completely unreasonable claims and assertions left a kind of vacuum where they were allowed to stand by default as being, at the very least, reasonable. Reasonable beliefs for people to hold. Yeah, And I think in the long run, that had a much more disturbing effect on people than if you had defended your corner rather robustly. You know, this idea, for example, that the Labour Party is an existential threat to Jewish life in Britain, that was allowed to take root in the mainstream of British politics and British media. It was launched into the mainstream. It's one of these things where you can date it precisely. It was launched into the mainstream in July 2018 in a statement that was drafted by Stephen Pollard and two of his allies in the name of the Jewish Chronicle in particular and two other Jewish community newspapers. And I don't believe for one moment that at that time that was an honest articulation of what Stephen Pollard genuinely believed. Because I know what politics Stephen Pollard has. He is a true swivel-eyed fanatic. (laughs) And we know from just the last few months his newspaper has printed a whole series of corrections, lengthy corrections that have been forced on them by Ipso, which is a rather toothless body uh, a lot of the time, but they forced them to print uh, thousand words. Particularly to their articles by Lee Harpin, I believe. Yeah, he, he was a particular offender, but I think he was only carrying out the mission that was assigned to him by Stephen Pollard. You know, mm. Stephen Pollard is someone who is worth lingering on, I think, because he had a disproportionate influence in this debate. His newspaper doesn't have a huge circulation in itself, but stories from it were picked up and went into circulation. And also it was presumed to have a kind of representative status. Back in 2006, Stephen Pollard said that he considered the mainstream British left to be the enemy of Western civilization. Those were his words. It was an extraordinary statement and it was 
quite telling it, the time at which you said that, the height of the war on terror. I mean, it was specifically referring to the Iraq war. That was the example that he gave where he said that he excluded Tony Blair from that <laughs> denunciation. <the> but <laughs> what he considered to be the mainstream British left was the majority of Labour MPs and the majority of Labour members. And the example he gave of why they were not on the right side in this war in defense of Western civilization against the Islamist enemy. Uh, the example he gave was the Iraq war. The fact that Blair had faced opposition to the Iraq war. Not that he had faced particularly strong opposition. You know, he got the vote through parliaments. Some Labour MPs rebelled, but the majority did not. And after the war began, after the invasion began, he didn't face very much opposition apart from a few people on the left like Jeremy Corbyn. But that fact alone for Stephen Pollard was enough to deem the greater part of the British left to be the enemy of Western civilization. So not just your political opponent in some kind of normal institutional framework, but the enemy in a war in defense of everything that you hold dear. That's the classic Eustonite thing as well. It's not enough having the entire British and American states behind you. You need the total and complete support of everyone, including the hard left, for your warmongering endeavors. Yeah, and and it does, I mean, it reaches into something broader, which I, I think is worth stressing perhaps, that it's not just about attitudes to Israel. I think in a lot of this debate, Israel has been a kind of proxy for Iraq where people in the British media and the British political establishment and the foreign policy establishment as well care a lot more about Iraq than they care about Israel and Palestine because they were directly involved. And if you were to accept the premise that the war in Iraq wasn't just a mistake, it was a crime from start to finish and from top to bottom, and it involved major atrocities against civilians, then you would have to condemn a whole cross-section of the British political and military and intelligence elite, including not just Blair, but people like Alistair Campbell and David Miliband and Jack Straw, who are still considered to be respectable figures, elder statesmen whose views are sought. And so I think the hostility towards Corbyn over issues to do with Israel and the Palestinians was often a kind of proxy for attitudes to Iraq, that they hated the fact Corbyn considered Palestinians to be fully-fledged, living, breathing human beings who had the same rights as Israelis and the same rights as Europeans. And when you scratch beneath the surface of the attacks on Corbyn, very often it comes back to that. He acted on the premise that Palestinians were the same as Israelis or as British or other European nationalities. All the controversies about, you know, for example, him supposedly laying a wreath for Abu Iyad, the PLO commander in Tunis. He didn't actually lay a wreath for Abu Iyad, but why would it have been so, such a big issue if he did? Because to commemorate a massacre. Tony Blair and David Cameron went to the funeral of Ariel Sharon. And Ariel Sharon unquestionably had the blood of thousands and thousands of innocent civilians on his hand, far more than Abu Ihad or any PLO commander. But there's an unspoken assumption there that Palestinians don't count in the same way that Israelis count or Europeans count. And the same goes for Corbyn meeting with Hamas. Why is it unacceptable for Corbyn to meet with Hamas when it's considered completely normal for British politicians to meet representatives of Likud or even more hardline right-wing anti-peace Israeli parties but again it's this kind of implied racial hierarchy and when you stretch that from Palestinians being fully human to Iraqis being fully human the the idea that Iraqis (laughs) have the same rights as anyone in Britain is completely unacceptable for the British yeah. political class and, they, and the they media. They start because, to feel seen at that point. Yeah, that would have revolutionary implications. But I guess to go back to Stephen Pollard and his political associates and his media associates, 
I'm quite certain that that statement, you know, it was a premeditated escalation of the narrative in the summer of 2018. He knew that it would get wide coverage and it was intended to introduce into public debate this idea. And the reaction from everyone, not just supporters of the left and supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, should have been to say, this is nonsense. This yeah. is completely detached from reality. And you're actually more likely to cause people to feel afraid yeah. than anything else. And yet it was allowed to kind of linger there in the mainstream media narrative. And that phrase, existential threat, I saw it being repeated verbatim multiple times. I think it was Joan Ryan repeated it when she left the Labour Party to join up with Change UK. She said that she couldn't be in a party that was posing an existential threat to Jewish communities in Britain. And of course, you had variations on it in the run up to the 2019 general election, you know, people comparing Corbyn to Hitler or comparing the Labour Party to the Nazis and so on. That was in the same vein. And that kind of rhetoric, I'm quite sure it had a really disturbing impact on people because when it's going around in the media and it's normalised and it's talked about as if it was a reasonable thing for people to believe, I think there is a heavy responsibility on the main architects of this campaign and this narrative. I don't believe there was ever a serious, sincere campaign to root out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party or in British politics. I think there was a campaign to brand Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters as anti-Semitic, which is something quite different. And the effect of that campaign was to cause a lot of completely unnecessary pain and anxiety. And everyone knows it's perfectly understandable that Jewish people in Britain or any European country would feel insecure because the Holocaust is still within living memory. And it's very easy to set off that feeling of insecurity and anxiety and so on. And I'm sure even the experience of being talked about so much must be disturbing and upsetting even if the people who are talking about you claim to be your friends and your supporters if there's mm. you know a front page story in the british media every week or every other week about anti-semitism in british politics or if it's at the top of the news bulletin it's like this constant reminder to people that there's something that sets you apart from everyone else and yeah. jewish people of course would be perfectly well aware that there are very ugly precedents for what happens when jewish people are perceived as being separate from everyone else and, and perceived as some kind of distinct minority in society so all of this has been, I'm afraid to say, in a very cynical, very calculated way, whipped up over the last two or three years. And the responsibility for that doesn't lie with Jeremy Corbyn. And the talk of Jeremy Corbyn being this kind of malign figure who caused all sorts of hurt and pain to the Jewish community and to other people in Britain is the exact opposite of the truth. It's his critics and his detractors who set out to create that kind of feeling. Do you think there's been a kind of willful credulousness applied to people's political motivations, be they someone like Stephen Pollard, who's a very pro-war right-winger, who's expressed some quite anti-Muslim views, or John Ware, the maker of a Panorama documentary, who's much the same. I mean, as I understand, he's quite litigious, but he's made a series of documentaries that consistently seem to target either Muslims or the left. Uh, seem to be his particular hobby horses. And, and when I say willful credulousness, I mean, I don't think people would look at this debate and say that Jeremy Corbyn's left-wing politics don't inform his interpretation of events. But it almost seems verboten to suggest that, you know, Ian Austin is motivated by a particularly right-wing, well, ideological position that he holds. Obviously, this is a debate you can't actually depoliticize, but on on the surface, this lack of acknowledgement of people's political goals and motivations possibly has 
resulted in a lot of confusion among people who haven't necessarily seen right through someone like Ian Austin or what have you. Yeah, I mean, to take John Ware as an example and to take his own words at face value, back in the summer of 2018, when you had that long-running controversy about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, John Ware wrote an article for the Jewish Chronicle, Pollard's newspaper, where he said that as far as he was concerned, the way you should interpret that definition would be to prohibit describing what happened to the Palestinians in 1947 and 1948 as an act of ethnic cleansing. Mm. He cited in particular an article by Seamus Milne when he was working for The Guardian where he refers to the Nakba as a form of ethnic cleansing. And as far as John Ware was concerned, not only did he want the right to say that the expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in that period was a form of necessary self-defence by the nascent Israeli state. But he wants that view to be enforced, perhaps even enforced by law, because there's been a kind of ambiguity with advocates of the IHRA definition where they, they want it to actually be the law of the land. But he certainly wanted it to be the law of the Labour Party and to be interpreted in that way that anyone who said what happened to the Palestinians in 47 and 48 was a form of ethnic cleansing, that they should be excluded from the party, which is extraordinary because that's the consensus of historians and it's even the consensus of historians who think it was the right thing to do for example <laughs> Benny Morris the Israeli historian decisively refuted the idea that the Palestinian refugees in that period had left their homes voluntarily having been instructed to do so by mythical radio broadcasts from their leaders he showed conclusively that they had been driven from, from their homes now Benny Morris himself would say that was the right thing to do and um, the only mistake was not to do more and they should have got rid of all the Palestinians from the state of what became Israel at that time. But Benny Morris would dismiss this this argument of John Ware with contempt and other Israeli historians, Avi Shleim and Ilan Pape and, and others who have a very different political perspective from Benny Morris. But the consensus among Israeli historians, they were known as the new historians, not quite so new now because they date back to the late 1980s, the beginning of their work. But their consensus has been to show that the traditional view of what happened in, in 1947 and 1948 as an act of self-defense and as a voluntary flight of those refugees is completely false and it's long since been discredited. But John Ware clings on to this view and you can find all kinds of other views in the same vein being expressed in publications like The Chronicle and Standpoint and so on. And it was completely unprofessional and unethical for the BBC to assign him the task of producing a documentary about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because he was clearly a vociferous critic and opponent of Jeremy Corbyn. And it would be akin to having someone who was a Fox News anchor making a documentary about Barack Obama. But yeah, the wider issue, I suppose, you know, moving on in a way from individuals like Stephen Pollard and John Ware, there's a wider sense in which people haven't faced up to the way the line between anti-Semitism and opposition to Israel, Israeli policy and Israeli actions has been systematically blurred by campaigning groups in the United States above all. And spreading out from there into other countries like Britain and France and Germany, where you just do not have a clear line of demarcation between groups that say their purpose is to lobby on behalf of the Israeli state and groups that say their purpose is to represent the Jewish community and oppose anti-Semitism. Because in the US, for example, you have APAC, which is a very well-known group, one of the most 
effective and influential lobbying groups on Capitol Hill. They could arrange when Barack Obama was the president and Netanyahu was at odds with him over peace talks with Iran. They could arrange for Netanyahu to be given a standing ovation by both houses of Congress. So that's APAC, which frankly puts its cards on the table and says it's a lobbying group for Israel, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee. But then you have groups like the Anti-Defamation League or the Simon Wiesenthal Centre, whose stated purpose is to oppose anti-Semitism, but they systematically blur the line between one and the other. And in fact, they give priority to support for Israel over the other. The first time I remember this happening, although there's probably previous examples of it as well, was back in the early 2000s when Silvio Berlusconi was the Italian opposition leader and the ADL gave him an award for his services uh, to the fight against anti-Semitism because he was such a vehement supporter of Israel. Around that time, just weeks earlier, uh, Berlusconi had given an interview with The Spectator where he had a few glasses of wine or a few glasses of Prosecco (laughs) and spoke too freely. And he said, Mussolini never killed anyone. He just sent them to holiday camps, which, of course, is a form of Holocaust denial from a state that actually participated in the Holocaust. You know, Mussolini was up to his neck in the deportation of Italian Jews from northern Italy by the Nazis in, in the latter stages of the war. And the ADL gave him this award overlooking his track record there, really setting it up for in more recent years where you've seen Netanyahu embracing figures like Viktor Orban, yeah. who is you know, one of the most egregiously anti-Semitic politicians in Europe. But the fact that he gives unconditional support to the occupation of Palestinian land overrules that. And then you have, gone back to the US contacts, you have the Simon Wiesenthal Centre, which is obviously named after, founded by the famous Nazi hunter. But every year the Simon Wiesenthal Centre publishes a list of the world's worst anti-Semitic incidents which should be a laughing stock, the the examples that they give, because it routinely elevates examples of people being critical of Israel in an entirely morally praiseworthy way over real incidents of anti-Semitism. So last year, for example, they put Jeremy Corbyn at the top of the list. Mm. And this was in the run up to the general election. People were trumpeting this and saying, this is how bad things have got for the British Labour Party that the Simon Wiesenthal Centre has put them as the world's worst example of anti-Semitism. What they didn't mention was that... Number one, the Labour Party. Number two, the Proud Boys or something. Yeah, yeah, it it was at that level, you know. But going back three years earlier... Who do you think the world's worst anti-Semite that year was? It was Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because there had been a motion at the UN to condemn illegal settlement construction. And for once, Obama hadn't vetoed that motion at the Security Council. He had abstained. He had directed the US ambassador to abstain. It was at a moment when he and John Kerry were very much at odds with Netanyahu. And this was singled out by the Simon Wiesenthal Centre as the world's worst instance of anti-Semitism. And there have been other examples like that where they put at near the top of the list when the EU, for example, decided to label Israeli settlement produce. And it wasn't a question of imposing a boycott or imposing sanctions or barring it from supermarkets or anything like that. It was just a question of giving consumers an informed choice. You could go in and see that it was produced in an Israeli settlement in the occupied territories and you could decide for yourself whether or not to buy it. And that was listed in the top 10 of worst anti-Semitic incidents. And there's all kinds of examples like that. And it should be a laughing stop, but it is taken seriously. And some Wiesnall Centre has been one of the most vociferous proponents of adopting the IHRA definition, which that was the point at which the narrative around the Labour Party and anti-Semitism escalated dramatically. I mean, you could see it happen in the space of a few weeks in mm, 2018. It went from you know, the standard line on Corbyn to say that he had a blind spot around anti-Semitism. It went to say 
that he was himself a vicious, hateful anti-Semite who had this all-consuming hatred of Jewish people that had been one of his political guiding stars from an early age. And that happened in the space of a few weeks. And it was all based on the IHRA definition, which has been argued for by pro-Israel campaigning groups precisely because they see it as something that can be used to undermine support for the Palestinians. Now, the man who originally drafted that report in the early 2000s, Kenneth Stern, he has said himself that he doesn't like the way it is being used. He said that he only ever intended it to be used for purposes of data collection rather than for any kind of coercive or, or disciplinary purpose and it's not fit for purpose in that sense. I do think it was probably naive if, if that was Stern's attitude to think that it wouldn't be used for those purposes. But in any case, the reason it's been taken up by groups in the United States and in Britain and in other countries is precisely because it can be used to cast a shadow over pretty much any robust and factual and hard-hitting and effective criticism of Israel. Because there's a kind of dialogue of the deaf, I would say, around this issue where people say, can you criticise Israel and not be anti-Semitic? And of course, nobody is going to say no to that question. Nobody is going to be bold enough to say criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. It's always a particular form of criticism that is stigmatised and placed just out mm. of, you know, the bounds of legitimacy. It's always said, you know, if you were to criticise Israel in this precise and particular way, you're not anti-Semitic, but this form of criticism is anti-Semitic. And the goalposts are always moving. People who defend this, they kind of say, you know, well, I criticise the Israeli government, but the phrasing there, the Israeli government, is quite telling because the treatment of Palestinians that's so appalling is not confined to Netanyahu and Likud. This is successive administrations and something about the overall political culture. Yeah, that's very much a motif of that line of argument. That First of all, people talk about Netanyahu as if he was some kind of outlier and not the dominant figure in Israeli politics for the last 25 years. If the Israeli political mainstream is anything, it is Netanyahu. Ever since the late 90s, he's been the most long-lived politician in Israeli history. He's been prime minister for longer than David Ben-Gurion. He has set the tone for Israeli politics more than anyone else. And he is very much in line with Israeli public opinion. The idea that Netanyahu's government is some kind of tyranny that is ruling over an unwilling Israeli population, unfortunately, is not true. His policies on what was the peace process, it hasn't been a peace process for a very long time, mm. his policies are supported unreservedly by the majority of the Israeli population, or, you know, some people want an even more extreme line. And so, you know, you have to talk about Netanyahu as if he's an outlier, and you also have to talk about the occupation as if it's something external or contingent external to the Israeli state. And that's not remotely realistic either because the occupation began when Israel was 20 years old in 1967 and Israel is now over 70 years old. The occupation has been there for the vast majority of its history and the settlements in the West Bank are an integral part of the Israeli state. They're considered part of the Israeli state. Netanyahu was talking about formally annexing the territories, but that simply would have made de jure what has been de facto for a very long time. And I mean, we saw this in the last few weeks, it's not just Corbyn or people on the left who fall and fell to this, where Stephen Kinnock, of all people, <laughs> was reportedly given a stern dressing down because he said that there should be sanctions applied to Israeli settlements. You got a bollocking uh, which is from not... Lisa Nandy, who people defend by saying, oh, she's chair of Labour Friends of Palestine, which you never yeah, know, I really. Mean, there's every reason to believe that the reason she became Labour Friends of Palestine was to stop her from doing everything. And certainly, <laughs> you know, that was the objective impact of her leadership whatever her intentions were in the first place but yeah it's that kind of hair splitting distinction where 
Nandi floated the idea of supporting a boycott of settlement goods or sanctions on settlement goods if Netanyahu went ahead with this annexation plan. And the truth is Netanyahu was probably never going to go ahead with this annexation plan because it was a great little scam for him over the summer where he raises this prospect and then he takes it away and people say, oh, well, he's made a concession now. <laughs> by, do, by doing something that he never actually had done and might never have done in the first place. That's um, reminiscent he, of a Starmer tactic, by the way, specifically <laughs> briefing to the media that he might appoint Rachel Reeves Chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Not it's, quite it's, a crime on the same level, but... Yeah. I mean, it's it's you have to accept it's good political craftsmanship and Netanyahu's a canny politician and, and it supplied that kind of fig leaf for some of the minor Arab dictatorships like Bahrain that wanted to normalise relations and they said, oh, well, in return for normalisation, he's taken this annexation plan off the table not that there's any chance of any meaningful withdrawal from the West Bank or any of the settlements that have already been constructed being dismantled or anything like that but Nandi was floating the idea of sanctions if the annexation plan went ahead Stephen Kinnock went that one step further and said well why don't we have sanctions on the settlements that are already in place that have been in place for decades and he was firmly reprimanded and once again this was held up as an example of Labour's issue with anti-Semitism, it's a kind of strange discrepancy where on the one hand, the taboo against saying that this controversy has anything to do with Israel or attitudes to Israel becomes all the greater. The more obvious it is that attitudes to Israel aren't just one part of it, but are right at the heart of it. And it has been, you know, I have to say it has been a failing of the left over the last two or three years that people lacked the confidence to say this. And I think the reasons people had for that I mentioned earlier a kind of understandable sensitivity, a desire to take allegations of racism and anti-Semitism seriously. And there was also, I think, a tactical misunderstanding. And this was, I think, particularly strong in the summer of 2018. And then after that summer, to some extent, the die was cast. It was very hard to go back on it. There was a feeling, particularly after the 2017 general election, that the Tories were on the ropes. Their government was very precarious. It was only a matter of time before they fell. It's probably been forgotten now, but just before Margaret Hodge gave her famous outburst at Jeremy Corbyn in the House of Commons, Theresa May's government seemed to be coming apart over Brexit mm. because Johnson had resigned from the cabinet over the Chequers agreement and other people had resigned. And it looked like all their tensions over Brexit were, were finally coming to a head. So I think there was a sense among people who were in the Labour leadership that they should try to avoid rocking the boat on their own side. And this induced caution on all kinds of different issues, not just in relation to this controversy, but caution over the idea of deselection, for example. Yeah. This feeling that we should just concentrate on keeping the party together, keeping the PLP together, working as a fairly cohesive force and get ready to pounce whenever the Tories finally stumble and we can go into a general election and we can win that election and then you know we'll be in a stronger position to tackle all these issues that are internal to the party i think that was a general attitude of john mcdonald for example now i was just watching earlier today which you probably saw the interview from two or three weeks ago with james schneider uh, oh, yeah. talking from from inside and he outlined that view and he wasn't presenting it in a moralistic way that this is a question of betrayal or personal failings it was a particular kind of strategic conception of how you advance the left-wing project and yes. if people were wrong about it you know it, do it doesn't mean that they were bad people or that they were cowardly it just means that they were mistaken that was james's um, interview on navarra wasn't it yeah yeah and check out uh, yeah i think that was very useful and very helpful and i think it definitely fed into the handling 
of this issue where at the very beginning of that controversy over the IHRA definition in particular, at the beginning of the summer in 2018, John Lonsman wrote a very good piece for The Guardian setting out the logic behind Labour's code of conduct, which was influenced and took over some of the wording of the IHRA definition, but differed from it in a number of ways. And he explained why it differed. He said that the IHRA definition as it was could be used to muzzle criticism of Israel and solidarity with the Palestinians. And Labour's code of conduct was better in that respect. And he went on to you know, point the finger at groups. He didn't name the Board of Deputies explicitly, but he was kind of <coughs> talking about them and disputing their claim to speak for the majority of the Jewish community in Britain when they supported illegal settlements. And that was an excellent argument. It was an excellent article. It said all the things that needed to be said. But it wasn't enough to say that once in one article in The Guardian. And I'm not picking out John Lansman in particular. I'm talking about the leadership as a whole. I think everyone, whether it was John Lansman or John McDonnell or Diane Abbott or Len McCluskey or, or anyone who was in a prominent position and had the opportunity to go out and bat in the media should have been repeating those points at every turn. They should have been repeating those points in response to the outburst from Margaret Hodge and in response to that statement from Stephen Pollard and his allies. And at every turn of the screw, every escalation, they should have repeated the message. The difference between our code of conduct and the I-Trade definition concerns attitudes to Israel. So that is what we're actually arguing about here. And we need to be honest about that. This is not a controversy about how the Labour Party relates to Jewish people and Jewish communities in Britain. It's a controversy about what Labour Party members are allowed to say about Israel. And we believe that our code of conduct is superior in that respect. And they didn't say that. And there was this protracted vacuum where they didn't respond. It was as if they thought it takes two to tango. If they didn't respond to these attacks, then they wouldn't give them oxygen. And I think that was a really serious miscalculation because by the end of that summer, you had all these ideas, the existential threat notion, the idea of Corbyn himself being anti-Semitic, normalised and established in the British media. And there was no longer any kind of rational or empirical constraint on what people could say you know by the end of that summer margaret hodge could go on sky news and say that her experience of getting the mildest possible slap on the wrist from labor's disciplinary process reminded her of the experience of jews under nazi germany the response from not just the labor party but the response from the british media to that should have been anger not yeah. anger directed at Corbyn, but anger directed at Margaret Hodge that she would say such a fatuous trivializing thing it's not just defamatory of Jeremy Corbyn. It's also trivialising of the experience yeah. of Nazism, the experience of Jewish people under Nazism. And yet this was accepted as just a normal, rational thing for her to have said. And really from that point on, it was open season. People could say yeah. whatever they liked. And you had all kinds of nonsense being pumped out in the course of the 2019 general election campaign by people like Ian Austin, who of course received a peerage for his loyal service to the Conservative Party. Or is it Tony um, Benn said about David Owen? He put in the House of Lords for services to the Conservative Party and he damn well <laughs> earned it. <laughs> and one of the most telling comments that I saw made on this entire affair, going back to 2016, was during the election campaign last year by Stephen Bush of the New Statesman. Oh yeah, who, someone who's it, disgraced himself in all this. Yeah, who, who in, in, in his printed articles has always been quite vociferous in pushing this line in the last few months, arguing that Rebecca Long-Bailey should be driven out of frontline politics for having shared an interview with Maxine Peake and presumably Maxine Peake should be driven out of public life altogether. Mm. But 
as a kind of throwaway remark while talking about this on Twitter, he said that in the whole course of the election campaign, when he was speaking to members of the public, people engaged with politics, and this issue of the Labour Party and anti-Semitism came up, most people didn't see it as a moral failing on the part of Corbyn. They saw it as an issue of competence. And I think that was really telling because if people had fully internalised this whole media narrative, they certainly would have seen it as a moral failing, the most abject moral failing by any politician in Britain since 1945. Mm. And the idea of expecting Corbyn to sort out the problem would be a category error. It would be like asking Donald Trump to sort out the problem of racism in the Republican Party. You wouldn't ask Trump to sort out racism. And if people believed this kind of demonic caricature of Corbyn, they wouldn't expect him to sort out anti-Semitism either. The only way to sort it out would be for him to leave and resign. And well, I think there is an element in, of that, in, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, the, that, that's definitely the attitude from the media, but as far as public opinion is concerned. Yeah. And I think that is the sense in which it was so damaging for perceptions of his leadership, because there were polling figures done where people were asked how much they had absorbed the details of these particular controversies, not just the whole overall media narrative around Labour anti-Semitism, but particular controversies around the wreath in Tunisia and the IHRA definition and this and that and the other. And the majority of people said they didn't understand the controversies, which in that sense, it differed from issues like Brexit or, or various other things where people would say they knew what was going on. And it's not surprising because these were very involved discussions that even people who are quite well informed about politics and history and current affairs might not necessarily know all the details of. And you wouldn't expect people to know a whole lot about the history of Israel and the Palestinians any more than you would expect them to know about the history of all kinds of other countries. You know, I doubt the majority of people in Britain who don't have family connections to Sri Lanka would be able to tell you about the history of Sri Lanka or people would be able to tell you about the history of Colombia or Bangladesh yeah, or places they're, like they're that. They're not necessarily going to know about the Israeli Air Force's bombing of the PLO headquarters in Tunisia. They're yeah, just going to yeah. see, oh, Corbyn laying a reef for terrorists. It's one of those things where it had to be retrofitted to be controversial afterwards mm. because at the time the Reagan administration condemned the Israeli bombing. Yeah. It, it wasn't remotely controversial at the time. But now, in hindsight, and someone like Abu Iyad is retrospectively deemed to have been this illegitimate figure who was beyond the pale, when in fact Abu Iyad was a good friend of the Americans, and particularly the CIA. <laughs> he worked with the CIA in the late 1980s to break up Abu Nadal's network. Mm. And Abu Nadal actually had him killed on orders from Saddam Hussein. In, orders from Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and I'm quite sure if you had asked the majority of British journalists, never mind the majority of people in Britain, to tell you who Abu Iyad was before that story appeared about the wreath, they wouldn't have been able to tell you. But subsequently, everyone asserts with total conviction that he was this kind of demonic terrorist figure and that if Corbyn didn't want to be branded as a terrorist sympathiser, he shouldn't have gone around laying wreaths for these despicable people. And that point I was making earlier about people having family connections, whether with India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Israel or Turkey or wherever it might be, it does touch on something interesting where I think it tells you something quite important about the whole structure of this controversy, that there was an attempt made by supporters of Narendra Modi and the BJP in Britain to whip up a pretty much identical controversy around the Labour Party, claiming that the Labour Party was anti-Indian and anti-Hindu, purely because it would not support Modi's clampdown on democratic rights in Kashmir in 2019. And they had some success in getting this across in the British media. It was on the front page of the Sunday Times. 
And the Sunday Times didn't even bother to conceal the fact that it was about Kashmir, attitudes to Kashmir. The guy who was quoted, who had worked as a political consultant for Modi, uh, he was based in Britain, but he'd worked for Modi. When he claimed that the Labour Party was anti-Indian and anti-Hindu, he gave no other examples other than the position it had adopted on Kashmir and claiming that they were doing this at the behest of Muslims and a lot of dog whistle mm. comments about jihadi fanatics and this sort of thing. Quite similar in a way to the accusations about Labour's position towards Israel, that it's also driven by a desire to appease Muslim communities. So they got this into the Sunday Times and they also intervened a few times. These Modi supporters intervened a few times during the 2019 general election campaign and were reported in the national media. Never really took on the same legs because the same effort wasn't put into it. And for particular historical reasons, there would be a greater taboo against anti-Semitism in Britain than there would be against anti-Hinduism. You know, yeah. Anti-Hinduism would be a kind of exotic concept in Britain in a way that anti-Semitism would not be. And ultimately the same effort wasn't put in, but I'm quite sure if, if someone had put the same effort into constructing a narrative of Labour being anti-Indian and anti-Hindu, they could have made it stand up. And there would have been some real evidence that you could adduce for that as well. Because if you went through the entire Labour membership, I'm sure you could find people expressing those views. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about people supporting your rights in Kashmir. I'm talking about people making kind of chauvinistic, anti-Indian or anti-Hindu comments. Some of those people might be from Pakistani backgrounds or they might be from white British backgrounds or whatever it might be. But you could find people like that. You could probably find more evidence of it than you could find of anti-Semitism. But, you know, the same the same effort wasn't, <laughs> wasn't put into it. And if that had been the case, then you would still have had to make the same effort to distinguish between, on the one hand, you know, genuinely bigoted attitudes expressed towards Indians or towards Hindus, on the one hand, and, you know, sharp criticism of Modi's actions in Kashmir on the other. There's nothing unique, in a sense, about the fact that Israel and its supporters accuse its critics of being anti-Semitic. It's not that this is the only state in the world that uses this tactic. States do it all the time. I mean, Erdogan and the AKP in Turkey will routinely accuse their critics of being Islamophobic and anti-Turkish. And they're not always wrong. You know, some mm. right-wing politicians in Europe who like to have a go at Erdogan, it's not because they care deeply about human rights in Turkey or the Kurdish population in the southeast. It's a way for them to have a pop at Turkish immigrants in their own country and Muslim yeah. immigrants in general. But it doesn't mean that Erdogan and his supporters are not complete charlatans when they level that accusation. Various authoritarian regimes in Africa, Mugabe, others have accused their critics in Europe of being racists with a colonial mentality. And yeah. again, they're not always wrong about that. You know, when <laughs> back in the late 90s, British Tories were deeply concerned about human rights in Zimbabwe. Mm. Obviously, there was a subtext there where they were trying to retrospectively legitimise the Ian Smith regime and say that it would have been better if white settler rule had continued indefinitely. And this shows that black Africans can't be trusted to run their own countries. And none of that takes away from the fact that Mugabe led a pretty unsavoury dictatorship that abused human rights and people had very good reasons to attack his human rights record. So, you know, these allegations are always levelled against people who are critical, whether it's critical of Israel or critical of Turkey or critical of India or critical of Pakistan. And it's not that, you know, Islamophobia is imaginary. It's not that anti-Semitism is imaginary. It's not that anti-black racism or anti-African racism is imaginary, but you do have to distinguish between actual cases of those forms of racism and bigotry on the one hand and people being rightly critical of a state and a regime that abuses human rights on the other. So there is nothing, I would say, especially remarkable about the fact that 
supporters of Israel use this tactic. What is exceptional is the fact that it has so much traction and it's become so pervasive. And it does sometimes lead people down a kind of blind alley where they assume the fact that this is such a pervasive issue in Britain and in the US as well and in other countries, it's the result of pro-Israel lobbying groups being especially powerful, which I don't think is the case. No. I don't think it's that people in the British political class and the British media are particularly concerned about Israel. I think they do support Israel, but it's not their number one priority. There are people in Britain who are Zionists in the strong sense of the term, you know, support for Israel is the core of their political identity. It's their number one priority. But those people... Um, but it, it often are, feels are, just like a kind of extension of an Atlanticist sort of world. Yeah, very, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. So you've got on the one hand, those people, the minority people who are such strong supporters of Israel that it's the core of their identity. And those people are Zionists in a meaningful sense of the term. And then you've got people for whom it's just part of a much wider package, the kind of right wing Atlanticist attitude. The crucial thing for them is the orientation towards the US and its alliances mm. and the fact that Israel is one of its close allies in the Middle East. And the thing is, people like that, they're just as keen on the alliance with Saudi Arabia, but they don't My like gates. to talk about they don't like to talk about it in the same way because, I mean, even Tony Blair will make a stab of saying that Saudi Arabia is a force for peace and progress in the Middle East. But it's hard to make the case. You know, you can't yeah. really say Saudi Arabia is the only democracy in the Middle East in the way that you might say that. People, <laughs> It's easier ever, to make the case if they've just paid you a large amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people will try and make the case for MBS being a great reformer and allowing women to drive and that sort of thing. And then he'll announce another batch of executions or he'll have a mm. journalist murdered and then dismembered with a bone saw in, in a Saudi embassy in Turkey. So really the supporters of the alliance with Saudi Arabia tend to be very quiet about it. They would prefer to have it unspoken and I think that's one of the reasons why Corbyn was such an unwelcome presence in British politics after 2015 because he did speak about Saudi Arabia and he spoke mm. in particular about the war in Yemen and Britain was directly involved in the war in Yemen. There were British military personnel in the Saudi control room helping call in strikes. There were British weapons and bombs being used and Americans as well and the whole thing was indefensible. I mean, it didn't even answer to any kind of strategic imperative for the US and its allies in the way that the Iraq war did, for example. Barack Obama didn't actually see any good reason to support the war, except for the fact that he had just signed this peace deal with Iran and mm. the Saudis were unhappy about that. So, I mean, this is, Triangulation. this is not speculation. This is openly stated that the reason he supported the war in Yemen was to give the Saudis a bone because they were so un unhappy about the deal with Iran. So... Yeah. No one had any good reason to be supporting this war apart from that desire to placate the Saudis and to sell some weapons. And the fact that Corbyn and Emily Thornberry were talking about it so much was very unwelcome. But you didn't see any kind of pushback against him on those grounds of saying that he was anti-Saudi, Islamophobic or anything like that. Mm. Whereas over Israel, it was easier to make those kind of arguments. I was going to ask as well, so you brought up earlier the new management that we hear so much about so frequently. As my friend Suze said the other day, it's quite laughable that Starmer is still like six or seven months into his leadership or whatever it is, just going like, hey, uh, I'm not Corbyn, look at me. But there is a new management, like it or not, and that includes, of course, Emily Thornberry, who you just mentioned, has, although she is still in the shadow cabinet, she's been replaced by the you know, even more right-wing Lisa Nandy, who, as you say, 
was basically policing the also not particularly left-wing Stephen Kinnock's criticisms of Israel. That's just one little incident, really, that I think fits a larger pattern within this new Starmer leadership. So I, I wanted to ask you, what do you see to be the role, or maybe the end game, of the Starmer leadership? It's hard to distinguish, isn't it, between what his subjective intentions may be and what his objective effect is going to be. He may actually believe the people from the media who are dangling these shiny baubles in front of him and saying, if you just condemn this person or expel that person or ditch this policy or ditch that policy and show yourself to be responsible and show yourself to be respectable, then once you've jumped through this final hoop, we will give you the stamp of legitimacy and you can become the next prime minister. He certainly seems to be behaving as if he was someone who believed that prospectus. And of course, as long as he is attacking the left and as long as there is a perceived need to shore up Starmer in a battle against the left, he will be backed to the hilt by the greater part of the British media and by the right wing of the Labour Party and by other interests and even by the Conservative Party. Yeah. And they will always prefer to puff up Starmer rather than allow the possibility that he might be unsuccessful in extirpating the spirit of Corbynism. Once he has actually done that and the left is no longer considered a threat and he might actually have the prospect of defeating the Tories and becoming the next prime minister, of course they'll turn on him. And they won't turn on him in the same way that they, they turned on Corbyn. He won't be subjected to the same kind of vilification. I don't think anyone would be subjected to that unless they were standing in direct continuity with, with the politics of Corbynism. But in itself, you know, that might not be necessary. Ed Miliband wasn't subjected to that kind of vilification. Gordon Brown wasn't. Neil Kinnock wasn't. They were all mocked and ridiculed and derided in their own particular way. And it was corrosive of their public image and their media image. But they weren't vilified in the same way as Corbyn. They weren't made into this kind of demonic figure. So all that Starmer appears to be doing it seems to be based on that priority, that imperative to get the stamp of approval from the guardians of the orthodoxy, the guardians of media, mainstream respectability. And he's all the more anxious and all the more performative about doing that because there was this perceived rupture with the norm and the normal way of doing things under Corbyn over the last few years. Mm. And insofar as he has a strategy, it appears to be if we do this and we get the seal of approval and we position ourselves to be the acceptable B team for British capitalism and the British ruling class and British politics, then sooner or later the Tories will self-destruct and we can inherit the ruins of the state. And I wouldn't want to say emphatically that won't happen because we've had, not just in Britain, all over the developed capitalist world we've had an exceptional situation this year where you have on the one hand an economic crisis that has the potential to be as big as anything since the great depression it hasn't really had its full impact yet because of the emergency stopgap measures the furlock and so on but if those measures were withdrawn you would be looking at unemployment on a scale that hasn't been seen for generations and at the same time you have this pandemic with mass fatalities and there's never really been a combination of the two. I mean, you had the Spanish flu epidemic a century ago and you had the Great Depression a decade after that, but you didn't have the two combined. So 
I don't think anyone should firmly predict what the political impact of those two converging factors is going to be. Is there going to be a tipping point where public opinion comes to perceive Boris Johnson as being grossly incompetent in his handling of the pandemic? The initial reaction in the first two months was to create this mood of national unity and this swelling of the Tory opinion poll support above 50%. Since then, there's been much more of a fraying and a sense of fatigue and think people are fed up with the idea of having a second lockdown without really causing a deep inroad into Tory support. But it's possible it could go one step further and Johnson comes to be seen as an actively malign and incompetent and harmful figure and Labour is able to come in on the back of that. So it's possible that it could work that way. But I wouldn't want to count on it. What we've just seen in the US in the last 24 hours, it's a good warning sign where if those factors were going to operate in the same way for Johnson as they were meant to operate for Trump, you have Trump being demonstrably incompetent and unlike Johnson, perhaps not even able to put across the impression of someone who was competent without actually being competent. You know, he, he didn't know how to articulate himself in a way that he looks like he's in charge and he looks like he cares about people. and He looks like he wants to address this as best he can. And you had the economic crisis and they didn't even have the same kind of social safety net and emergency support measures in the US. And yet his support hasn't collapsed. And Biden's pitch for the presidency was very much similar to what Starmer is trying to set out here of depressing expectations, not offering some kind of radical constructive alternative, but, you know, very offering depressing. people something fairly mediocre and almost yeah. making a virtue out of its mediocrity and saying, are you sick of caring about politics as much as you have had to care about it in the last few years? Yeah. We're going to give you a quiet life. We're going to give you a boring bank manager as a politician. We're going to um, let you go to brunch. <laughs> <laughs> and the theory was that that would be a very appealing message. And it doesn't appear to have been a very appealing message. And all through the campaign in the last few months, there was this mm. kind of euphemistic term of the Biden campaign suffering from an enthusiasm gap, which is another way of saying they deliberately set out to depress and demoralize a large chunk of their base and offer them as little as possible and get elected having offered them as little as possible. And they thought yeah. that they could coast into power on the back of the pandemic and the I economic crisis. They were just like, if we flip the left the bird and just say, fuck you to this lot, then we'll actually win even more voters. And it's hard not to feel that that's the same calculation that Starmer and his goons are making. Yeah, yeah, and... Again, there was an alternative course open to him because he had a clear mandate from the election to the leadership election to try and preserve as much as possible of the last two election manifestos while having a very different political style and having a better relationship with the PLP and the media and so on. And that was what the majority of people in the Labour Party membership opted for, certainly the ones who cast a vote. And people who supported Rebecca Long-Bailey were warning that Starmer was promising them incompatible things and you would get one and not the other and the fact that they were incompatible it's not so much because I think they were inherently incompatible it's just the disposition of the labour right and the media that in principle there's no reason why you couldn't carry on with certainly the 2017 election manifesto the 2019 one went a bit further but after 2017 even MPs on the right of the Labour Party tended to say that they thought the manifesto was great and they yeah. agreed with the policies because all it was offering was basic social democratic policies that are popular and it was nothing you know the 2019 one was going a bit 
further outside of that framework of traditional social democracy without necessarily breaking with it altogether. But the 2017 one was definitely squarely in that tradition. You could slot that in with the Attlee government or the Wilson government or the Wilson Callaghan government rather than the more kind of radical Bennett experiments of the late 70s and the early 80s. And the Labour right politicians who call themselves social democrats should have been able to sign up for that. I mean, some of the more vociferous advocates of privatisation and privatised water in particular um, had already left with <laughs> I with was going to say UK. Chris Leslie, but I know who you meant there, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in principle, you, you could have got people singing from that hymn sheet. I think what made it unsustainable would have been on the one hand that disposition of the labour rights and the media and also the fact that Corbynism had happened mm. and this perceived need to exercise the memory of the 2017 general election because it's quite different from Michael Foote what happened in the early 80s where Labour never had any electoral success with that programme. There was a period in 81, 82 at least before the split with the SDP when they were doing quite well in the opinion polls under foot, but they never actually banked that in a general election so all you had was this very bad 1983 election results where they were nearly overtaken by the SDP, hung on by the skin of their teeth and it took several elections to get back into a position where they were competitive for power. Whereas in the last five years, everyone has seen what happened in 2017 where Labour got 40% of the vote, highest vote since 2001, biggest increase in vote share for any major party since 1945. And it's instructive really to go back and read some of the media commentary from the weeks and, and even to some extent the months after that election when it was universally perceived as a triumph for Corbyn. Mm. And that's now been rewritten by not just pundits but even political science academics I see referring to Corbyn's two abject failures. They really did all the figures like they add in European elections or like the elections that Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown lost. They're like the 10 successive elections that Corbyn lost us. Yeah, he lost Strictly Come Dancing by default, having never appeared on it. Um, <laughs> you know, Arsenal didn't win the league, <laughs> got knocked out of Europe early. You know, you're looking at 12, 13 defeats there for Corbyn. But this all happened and it happened within living memory and it's all on the public record. And you can find all those quotes from Labour MPs and Guardian columnists and people like that saying Jeremy Corbyn has proved me wrong it is kind of a tonic if you want to set aside some of this rewriting of history from the last two or three years just to find in particular the clip I remember Channel 4 put together a clips reel just after the election of all these Labour MPs saying back in 2016 Corbyn has to go Corbyn is useless Corbyn is not a good leader he's (laughs) not capable he's not competent etc he's never going to resonate with the electors and all the same MPs with a few begrudging exceptions like Chris Leslie saying I was wrong Jeremy Corbyn has proved me wrong and I'm happy to mm-hmm. acknowledge it and Owen Smith who of course ran against him in, in 2016 even saying I don't know what Jeremy has got but if we could bottle that and give it to everyone then we'd be doing very well mm. and I take my hat off to him these quotes are all there on the public record and no matter how vociferously you deny that it happened everyone saw it happened that's why they needed their moral argument after that because the competence one had died a death. Yeah, it really shows you the shift of gear from Jeremy is a good man, but he's not a leader to Jeremy may be a leader, but he's not a good man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, way people, the way people would turn on a dime like that. And 
one of the ideas that's being put about at the moment, and this is a clear kind of retrospective divide and rule strategy, is that it would have been better if John McDonnell had been the leader and not Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah, this oh, actually, don't get me started, man. <laughs> yeah, and this kind of features in the recent book by Owen Jones. And I'm does, not yes. saying this in a spirit of having a go at John McDonnell, because I think that's just falling into the trap of this. But the public perception of Corbyn and John McDonnell differed because Corbyn was the leader. And he was subjected to this extraordinary campaign of vilification and he was held responsible for the anti-Semitism controversy in the Labour Party. And he was also held responsible for perceived vacillations around Labour's Brexit policy in a way that nobody else was, including John McDonnell. I'm quite certain if the roles had been reversed and McDonnell was the leader and Corbyn was the deputy, mm. the difference of perception would have been the same. Labour's I mean, IRA crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about baggage, you know, yeah. you think Corbyn inherently had all this baggage. That, and Not that public... I disagree with McDonnell yeah. on Ireland, yeah, yeah. for the record. <laughs> yeah. I'm not yeah. taking like a unionist, hardline, orange brigade fucking view. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. If you talk about the stuff that is considered to be baggage by mainstream British politics and the British media John McDonald probably had more of that in his past yeah. than, than Corbyn did and actually before 2015 the universal perception of the two of them was the opposite of what it became three or four years later that McDonald was perceived as the nasty spiky abrasive character and Corbyn was perceived as this incredibly polite softly spoken emollient figure that all of his fellow MPs liked even if they didn't like his politics and that was why yeah. He was the candidate in 2015 and not John McDonald because uh, McDonald had tried to get on the ballot twice in 2007 and 2010 and both times he couldn't get past the threshold of MPs because the MPs didn't like him. Mm. They thought he was an asshole. They thought he was this crazy trot, IRA sympathiser, whatever. And they had a view of Jeremy Corbyn that, oh, he's probably also a crazy trot, but at least he's a nice man. You know, no mm. one had a bad word to say about him. He'd never raise his voice in anger, etc. And... He was the one who was subjected to this. And it shows you that if you could take Corbyn, who is just this almost parodically mild-mannered figure, <laughs> who, um, <laughs> you know, this kind of kindly English eccentric who makes his own jam and has his own allotment and has a passion for trains and manhole covers and actually likes football, unlike all this, you know, whole generation yeah, of British politicians who <laughs> made a great show of, of liking football player. I'd say if you asked him, is the ball that they use in, in football, is it round or is it oblong? In the early 90s, he would have struggled to tell you. Um, but uh, Corbyn could actually give kind of informed discussions about Wenger's stewardship of Arsenal and the best players in the Premier League. And they could take him and turn him into this demonic figure. They could certainly do it with anyone. They could have done it with John McDonald. They could have done it with any figure from the, from the Labour left now or yeah. in the future. I mean, the one kind of rational thing of this perception of McDonald versus Corbyn is that I do think that McDonald was better at giving television interviews when he yeah. was in a Newsnight studio or, or something like that. And he was good at articulating a policy brief. And that sort of thing. And that's fine. And it's a useful political skill to have. But I don't think it was in any way the, the central issue. And it was just another example of this kind of double bind that Corbyn was subjected to. That when he took over as leader, appointing John McDonald to be his shadow chancellor was considered to be one of his most provocative moves. You know, this mm. was being held up as a sign that, oh, Corbyn, he's not serious about party unity. He's thrown a red rag down to everyone by, by putting McDonald in this post. And even someone like Len McCluskey at the time thought it was a bridge too far. He, he thought mm. they, they couldn't make this stick. I mean, he, he didn't have any political objections to it. He just thought tactically it wasn't the right thing to do. And then, of course, over the next couple of years, John McDonnell applied himself to that job very well. He worked very hard. He 
brought in a team of advisors. He worked with economists and he developed a kind of modernized left wing social democratic platform more or less from scratch. And, you know, I was talking last year to journalists who were over from the US and they were really impressed with the work that McDonald had done and they thought it was far in advance of anything from the left wing of the Democrats in the US. And it was almost after a generation where the left had had no possibility of exercising power. So it wasn't thinking about what it might do with power. And in the space of two or three years, he came up with this quite ambitious agenda. And rather than crediting that to Corbyn and say, well, he stuck his neck out and put this guy in there who everyone thought was a Trotskyist lunatic. And he turned out to be very capable and very hardworking and impressed all kinds of people who wouldn't normally like the Labour Party. Instead of giving Corbyn credit for that, you turn it into a point against him. You praise John McDonnell in order to do down Jeremy Corbyn. It's a very cynical yep. game. And yeah. I've seen John McDonnell himself express his exasperation with it. So I don't, I don't think anyone sure should be is, playing yeah. into that. Maybe just a little bit more on the present situation with Starmer and his leadership style at the moment. I mean, obviously he lacks a certain kind of killer instinct when it comes to the Conservative Party, the establishment, <laughs> what have you. But... At the same time, there is this kind of ruthlessness with him where he can work closely with Jeremy Corbyn as, in his own words, a friend and a colleague for several years. And then effectively buy into this, you know, I think objectively false notion that he alone deserves to kind of carry the can for however the Labour anti-Semitism thing was perceived. I think you also saw this as well in, although, you know, I've heard that she left... HQ on her own terms. Jenny Formby, who was Labour's general secretary for the last two years of Corbyn's leadership, it was reported that Starmer had expressed a desire for her to leave her position. And all the evidence shows that Labour's processes, the internal processes for dealing with anti-Semitism specifically, actually improved under Jenny Formby. So this is what I'm talking about with a ruthlessness. The current Labour Party, they will throw you under the bus if the media says you're bad, regardless of what the facts are. I've not articulated this very well, but I feel like that's a worrying place for the left to be in, because the media are always going to have a reason why we're bastards, and if our own leadership, well, ostensibly our leadership, agrees with that, yeah, it doesn't seem great, really. Yeah, I guess there's two things I'd say there, maybe wrap up with this, that... I think Starmer will find that coming back to bite him because over the last week there's been a pretty glaring contradiction that nobody in the British media has thought to point out. They've all been so busy praising his decisive action and his leadership skills and all the rest of it and his moral integrity. But there is a very obvious contradiction where he says the reason Corbyn was suspended was because he issued this statement saying that the scale of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was exaggerated by his political opponents and by people in the media. Now, presumably, the logical conclusion of that is that everything that was said in the media and by Corbyn's opponents over the course of 2017, 18, 19, in the run-up to the general election, was reasonable and proportionate and not in any way exaggerated. And so much so that even suggesting it might have been exaggerated is a disciplinary offence. So when people said Labour was an existential threat to Jewish life in Britain, that was a reasonable thing to say when people said that Corbyn himself was not merely someone with a blind spot um, or incompetent in handling the issue, but he was actually a hardened anti-Semite in his own right. That was a reasonable thing to say and so on. And it begs the question, 
if that was true, if that was the case, then why was Keir Starmer a member of his shadow cabinet? And why was he working, ostensibly at least, to make him prime minister yeah. and to bring the Labour Party into government? Now, we might say for a large part of the 2019 general election campaign, Keir Starmer was actually preparing to run his campaign for leadership of the Labour Party. And was one reason why he had a big head start over Rebecca Long-Bailey, because she was actually out there busting a gut to try and maximise the Labour vote while yeah. he was putting together a rather slick PR video. But certainly as far as the public was concerned, Starmer was part of Corbyn's inner team and he was out there trying to win support for Labour. For this politician who, according to a narrative that he has now endorsed, was himself this kind of lethal existential threat to the Jewish community in Britain. And nobody has pointed this out yet, but I'm quite certain that the Conservative Party and their allies in the press are filing this away to be used whenever they deem appropriate, whenever there is a point where they see Starmer as the most immediate threat when the left has been marginalised, whether it's the run-up to a general election or before then, or whenever it might be. And he will struggle to answer that. He'll have two ways out of that. He'll either have to say, I don't think that narrative about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party was accurate, in which case his argument for suspending Corbyn falls apart. Or else he has to say, yes, I was working to make this man who I now consider to have been a mortal threat to Jewish communities in Britain. I was working to make him prime minister and I can only say, well, sorry, I won't do it again. Right. Imagine <laughs> and, being and, a centrist type right now. You're out there supporting the man who helped a virulent anti-Semite do Brexit, by your <laughs> estimation. <laughs> and I have seen Starmer getting rather narky and appears to be rather narky and thin-skinned under questioning. So I'm curious to see how he'll deal with questions like that. The second point I want to make about, I think you're quite right that the fate of the Labour left, the left that supported Corbyn, under these circumstances is not at all promising because it's not just Corbyn. I mean, Corbyn, by the time he was suspended, clearly he was yesterday's man in terms of the inner politics of the Labour Party. I'm sure he would want to be involved in supporting campaigns and doing things like that. You remember the quote from Tony Benn when he said that he stepped down as an MP because he wanted more time for politics. I think mm. there would probably have been a side to Corbyn that would have seen things in the same light. But yeah. certainly he wasn't someone who aspired to play a role in the high politics of the Labour Party from now on. He wasn't going to be a potential leadership rival or someone who would serve in the shadow cabinet or anything like that. But Rebecca Long-Bailey was, you know, she was a generation younger. She was a very capable figure and someone who, on purely meritocratic grounds, should be in Starmer's shadow cabinet by rights. And of course, she was uh, bundled out. And the real motivation for bundling her out was the fact that as shadow education secretary, she had unexpectedly become a pivotal figure because the controversy about the teaching unions and the reopening of schools and mm. she was articulating a line that was a very good line and it was putting the Tories under pressure but it was closely associated with the position of the unions and Starmer and his team performatively wanted to have a confrontation with the unions any union would do so they had to get rid of her um, but the pretext that he chose for it was this incredibly contrived half-baked allegation of anti-Semitism in relation to this famous interview with Maxine Peake where she spoke about Israel and Israel training US police forces. So now Rebecca Long-Bailey has that stigma attached to her of within a few hours 
Newsnight and the rest of the British media were saying that she had shared an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, and this was which given... makes it sound like she like personally did a post about like the Rothschilds or something. Yeah, and no, as far as the British public are concerned, people probably didn't look into the details of it. They just hear someone has been sacked for sharing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Yeah, those are the kind of things mm. that you'd imagine that it was something to do with the Rothschilds or Jewish people controlling the banking system, etc. And probably the reaction of a lot of people is to say, oh, here we go again. Not, no not again. What, what is it about this faction associated with Corbyn and the Labour Party that they can't avoid stepping on these rakes and, yeah. and getting embroiled in these controversies? But because the standards of evidence that have been applied across the board for a long time, you can make this allegation out of nothing, basically. And it will be used against people on the left. And there's really no alternative but to confront it. And going back to the point about people being equivocal about Corbyn last week and saying oh he shouldn't have been suspended but he should have decided that discretion was the better part of valour and not said what he said or not said it at that time they have it entirely wrong um, and it's not just bad in principle it's bad tactics bad strategy as well it's pseudo pragmatism and I think there is a heavy responsibility on all of the organised players here because it's all very well for individual members and supporters of Corbyn to rage about this on social media because right now that's all they can do because yeah. with the pandemic, normal political activity is shut down, nor normal party political activity, branch meetings and so on is shut down. And that kind of thing might be rigged anyway, given the kind of skullduggery that the Labour right has been notorious for for years. So there's a heavy responsibility for the organised players like Momentum, Socialist Campaign Group, the left-wing unions, unions with left-wing leadership teams, they have some real institutional heft and they can actually do something potentially. And they need to do it. And they can't yeah. just, you know, Where issue a kind of formulaic statement complaining about what was done and then just move on. Here's and move on to the next item. Because if you can't stand up for Corbyn over this, you're not going to get anything done. Uh, yeah. over something so elementary and it's not about one man and it's what not, not even that people it, to do when Starmer comes for them next yeah exactly it's not that it would be wrong for people to have a particular concern about Corwin as one man because he deserves to have people stand up for him and mm. it's natural that people would feel a kind of personal loyalty to him I do feel a kind of personal yeah, loyalty same. to him although I've never met the guy but given his track record and particularly the stuff that he had to put up with after 2015 and it infuriates me to see him being traduced mm. and abused in this way but it's more than just one man and his record and his reputation. It's about ideas and principles. And the whole point of going after Corbyn is to bury those ideas and those principles and it's to create this kind of demonic bogeyman figure who will always be waved against anyone who comes back and argues for the same things two years down the line, five years down the line. And not just in Britain, in other countries as well. I imagine this yeah. being used against the new left in the United States or in uh, France or, or in other places. Anthony Scaramucci was saying today that Joe Biden went full Corbynite in his agenda. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hence his disappointing results. So yes, you're absolutely right on that point. So, you know, this is about defending the legacy of the last few years. If you don't want this view to go down in the British media and in the international media that the left gained the leadership of the Labour Party and not only did it end in electoral failure, but it ended up more importantly in this kind of catastrophic moral failure where the whole party was mired in anti-Semitic bigotry and it was akin to the far right. If you can't stand up to that, then 
you're not going to achieve anything in politics. So it's anything but pragmatic to think that you can kind of box this off and move on. Because that's, as I was saying earlier, that's been the attitude all along that you can go around this issue rather than confront it head on and actually do the hard work of challenging it. And every time there's been an apology that wasn't warranted or a concession that wasn't warranted or people have left a vacuum and allowed something that they knew wasn't true to be kind of given official status, it's just compounded things and it's come back to haunt people. And a little over two years ago, when Labour's NEC signed up to the IHRA definition, people were saying then, oh, well, this will draw a line under this. We'll put it behind And you us, could tell yeah. at the time it wouldn't, but yeah, you know, of course. not only did it come back to haunt people for the whole of 2019, but it's still haunting them now over two years later, even yeah. after Corbyn is gone. So if you can't take a stand now, really it's now or never. It's not just as far as Britain is concerned, because over the last 10 years, there's been an effort to draw a parallel between the left and the far right. Yeah. The first time I remember seeing this was with the rise of Syriza and Golden Dawn in Greece, where they were presented as being equivalent forces, even though Golden Dawn was an actual neo-Nazi party, criminal gang with its own paramilitary squad that went around murdering people. Mm. And Syriza was a democratic socialist party that was anti-racist and worked through the parliamentary system. But they were still presented as being mirror images. And then we saw it later with Pablo Iglesias being presented as the equivalent of Marine Le Pen except only Marine Le Pen gets an invitation to be on Andrew Marr. And <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn being presented as the imitation, the mirror image of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, except also in those cases, Johnson and Farage get a much more indulgent treatment from the British media mm. than Corbyn does. And now, in the last few years, Bernie Sanders being presented as the equivalent of Donald Trump, when really the moral and political difference between them and the difference of political style and political methodology is a difference of night and day. Yeah. Um, good and bad, right and wrong. And... This idea of the twin extremes and horseshoe theory, it's completely detached from reality, but it will not stop people who think of themselves as being on centre ground, centrists and moderates and even liberals from clinging on to it for dear life and propagating it any way they can. And I'm quite certain that if this story, this bogeyman, this fairy tale about Corbyn isn't challenged effectively, then we're going to have this thrown at us for years to come. This yeah. idea that the Labour Party in Britain posed a threat to Jewish people that was akin to the threat which the National Front in France or the BNP in Britain would pose to Muslims or to black yeah. people. It's completely false. It's completely misleading. It's completely defamatory. But it is being enshrined as if it was mm-hmm. fact. And challenging that version of events is not some kind of niche issue that we can afford to take on or not take on depending on what seems expedient it's the whole future of the project that's at stake here Uh, i'm not just talking about the corbyn project because you know the corbyn project as such is over but you know Mm. there are elements that you can salvage from that project to try and build for the future not that it's going to be leading the labor party in the short term but you can build some of that activist infrastructure and some of those ideas and, and carry on with it but the whole democratic socialist project in britain in france in germany in spain in greece in the usa does hinged to some extent on getting this right and challenging it effectively yeah i think so well should we call it a day there then sure (laughs) why my voice went so hoarse there thanks so much for for talking for the last couple of hours dan it's been really really interesting okay no problem
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing. 